This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. I'm trying to keep it down because the mighty Aphrodite, I just picked her up from the island airport, the Billy Bishop Island Airport, just flew in from Montreal. Didn't have time to take her home. Very tired, so she's curled up in the corner of the studio, sleeping. She's so cute. Anyway, welcome to the program. Hey, uh, always delighted to kick off the proceedings this way. We're welcoming a new affiliate tonight, WEZU-FM 95.9, or for my Canadian listeners, WEZU-FM 95.9, Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, which I understand hails from, uh, or uh, is, uh, is, is uh, part of Halifax County down there in uh, the beautiful, beautiful state of North Carolina. WEZU-FM 95.9, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Uh, interesting week, of course. We had uh, Tokyo named as the uh, the site of the 2020 Summer, Oli- Summer Olympiad. Now, uh, uh, Tim Spreen, my technical producer, pumping his fist in the air because you have some connections to Japan. You you have uh, friends, family there, uh, Tim, and you, you've been there several times, have you not? Twice. Uh, just it, and, and, of course, the organizers there had to convince the Olympic Committee that the, obviously, that the horrible uh, ongoing uh, radiation situation following the, um, the Fukushima nuclear disaster a couple of years ago, uh, that they say they have it in hand. I'm not so sure. Of course, my big concern is we're, we're, uh, we're seven years out, and in 2020, will they have, even have to uh, light the Olympic cauldron in Tokyo, or you know, will the entire island be glowing with, uh, with radioactivity? I'm, I'm, not, uh, you know, I, I'm not trying to be flippant about it. It's, it's, it's a huge concern. We just had reports that the cooling tanks uh, uh, may have leaked tons of radioactive liquid every day for a month following that disaster. And some pretty candid statements from some of the, the technicians working at Fukushima saying, we don't have a handle on this and we don't know how to get a handle on this. Uh, so 
you know, congratulations to Tokyo, but man, they must have done quite a sales job to the Olympic Committee to to, to convince them that they have the radioactive uh, leak uh, contained or that it won't be a concern. Uh, of course, the U.S. Uh, uh, administration and President Barack Obama uh, taking their case to uh, U.S. representatives, trying to convince them to vote for some sort of a military strike against Syria. It's interesting the uh, Obama administration saying recently that it's just common sense that it would have been the Assad regime responsible for the August 21 chemical strike. And I look at the situation, never mind the, the UN report that came out in May that said that it's the insurgents or the rebels, if you will, that have the sarin gas and the chemical, the chemical agents. They're in possession of these things and they were responsible for some chemical attacks prior to the August 21, the most recent one, which killed nearly 1,400 people. Horrible, horrible situation over there in Syria. <clears throat> but uh, I say, well, let's, let's look at the makeup of the insurgents. We've got Al-Qaeda operating over there. To me, it's common sense that they would be using the chemical agents. And, of course, we had that AP stringer uh, who, who published a report after interviewing a number of witnesses in the Damascus suburb where the rebels essentially admitted they had the chemical agents and they mishandled them and they didn't know what to do with them. They even identified the people responsible for giving those chemical agents to the rebels. And surprise, surprise, they came from Saudi Arabia. And the path seems to link back to Prince Bandar, otherwise known as Bandar Bush, of course, was the Saudi diplomat, the U.S. ambassador, or sorry, the Saudi ambassador to the United States, very close ties with the Bush family. And uh, his fingerprints seem to be over a lot of these false flag operations and terrorist attacks and even 9-11, which leads us, of course, this is the time of, uh, of year that we look back now, 12 years ago, and commemorate the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And tonight, we're going to look at consensus points uh, that have been compiled by a group called the 9-11 Consensus Panel, which is building a body of evidence-based research into the events of September 11, 2001, They've published online 28 consensus points, as I say, that have been validated by a scientific consensus process and that contradict the official claims regarding 9-11. We're about to learn about those consensus points as they offer what they consider to be the best evidence that the 9-11 events unfolded in a way quite different from the official version we've all heard over and over again. Jonathan Cole joins us. He's a professional civil engineer registered in Connecticut, Florida, and New Hampshire. He graduated in 1979, more than 28 years in civil engineering and construction management, including building, bridge, utility, and infrastructure design. Jonathan, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great, Richard. Thank you for having me on tonight. We also have with us... Dr. Graham McQueen, Associate Professor, retired in the Department of Religious Studies at McMaster University here in Canada, just down the road in the great city of Hamilton, and a former director of McMaster's Center for Peace Studies. His 9-11 research includes four peer-reviewed articles. He served on the steering committee 
of the international hearings on the events of September 11, 2001, held in Toronto in September 2011. Dr. Graham McQueen, welcome to you, sir. Thank you, Richard. It's good to be here. Let's uh, just take a few moments, gentlemen. Either of you jump in, if you will, and uh, tell us a little bit about the makeup of the 9-11 consensus panel. How did it come together? Who's on the panel? Um, Can I start, John? You sure can. Uh, I just want to uh, say a little bit, Richard, about what I think the function of this panel is within the movement. Is that okay? Certainly. So here we have this terrible crime that happens in the fall of 2001. And uh, the state, in this case, within the United States, has different bodies that should be investigating it, Uh, the main one being the FBI that had the main responsibility. What do you do if those official investigative bodies have become corrupted and are covering up the crime instead of investigating it properly? That's That's how we have to start this. Well, what you do is... Civil society, meaning the population as a whole, has to say that's not, that's not good enough. This was a terrible crime. It killed a lot of people. And it formed the pretext for what is now clearly a series of invasions and wars. So we are going to investigate it. And so you have this big upwelling of creativity. And people, in some cases, who never even did research before begin doing it. And they communicate, mainly on the Internet. And this tremendous, really, civil society research project starts up. Try and figure this out. And this is good, in my opinion. This is really good. It's exciting. It's what should happen. However, uh, you get a mixture of stuff. You get points that are well-supported by evidence. You get points that are not well-supported. And you get disinformation from a whole bunch of state agencies and so on that want to confuse people. And at that point, what you need is institutions or groups that can help sort through the evidence that's been accumulated and the points that that civil society has, you know, accumulated and say, look, these are the strongest points. These are the ones we're really going to nail down and we're going to present to the public. And as I see it, that's one of the functions of the consensus panel. It doesn't have any kind of official status within the social movement, nor should it. People don't have to obey it. Or, you know, we don't boss people around. But I see it as a kind of a council of elders where we sit and we, we sift through evidence and we come up with a bunch of points. I think it's actually 37, uh, roughly 37 consensus points now, Richard. And anybody can find them. Anybody can have access to them. Just go into your search engine and type in, 9-11 consensus panel or some combination, you'll get them. You'll get the points stated pretty clearly, pretty briefly, and with all the supporting evidence. So I think this is a really important function that this group is able to provide. And I just wanted to give that as kind of an intro. Uh, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Cole and uh, Dr. Graham McQueen with us, two members of the 9-11 consensus panel, and uh, now 37 uh, consensus points. Uh, there were 28, and I believe you just unveiled, uh, I guess, an additional nine. Is that correct, uh, Jonathan? We, we unveiled, I believe, an additional five uh, just, uh, just either yesterday uh, or today, I believe it's on the site, that we've been working on over the last two or three months uh, as part of this panel. 
The interesting thing about this panel, uh, by the way, is that we work in the blind. Uh, we know who the members are. Uh, there's there's a, there's a, uh, about 20 or uh, 20 or 25 of us on the panel, but we don't discuss any of these amongst each other. Uh, these points are put together and sent to us, and each of us blindly reviews it and adds input to it during uh, during this whole process. So it's an interesting process that kind of sifts out and shakes things out, and then we all independently vote on these things as far as whether we feel that we strongly agree with the consensus point or we strongly disagree. Uh, so that's, that's kind of another interesting aspect how this whole thing's put together. But yes, to answer your question, there's been a recent, uh, at least five added that we've been working on in the last month or so. And uh, we should point out the website. If people want to go on there and look at the 37 uh, consensus points, the 9-11 Best Evidence Panel, and it's uh, www.consensus911.org. Consensus, and then, of course, the numerals 911 or 911.org. We should also point out uh, the uh, one of the co-founders is Dr. David Ray Griffin. Now, uh, let's, before we get into the the consensus points, and obviously we're not going to have time to cover 37. We'll get to as many as we can. Um, I want you to explain the, I guess, the the methodology uh, behind arriving at these consensus points. It's something called uh, the Delphi uh, method, I understand. Uh, either uh, Graham or Jonathan, if you could explain what the Delphi method is, how these consensus points were arrived in. What's, what's the process? I'll, I'll have a start, although John John actually started us off on that. But, okay, uh, I just but, actually the music is starting to to, uh, to percolate up. I don't know if you can hear that, yep. so we're going to take a timeout. Okay. When we come back, we'll launch into that. We'll talk about how these thirty-seven consensus points uh, were arrived at as we discuss the best evidence with Jonathan Cole and Dr. Graham McQueen of the Consensus Nine Eleven panel here on the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Welcome back. The 9-11 Consensus Panel has published online 37 now, 37 consensus points that have been validated by a scientific consensus process and that contradict the official claims regarding 9-11. Two of the members, Jonathan Cole, professional civil engineer, and Dr. Graham McQueen, associate professor retired in the Department of Religious Studies at McMaster University in Canada, uh, join me. And uh, we were discussing the how these consensus points were arrived at, something uh, called the Delphi method used uh, over a six-month period to, to arrive, again, at these consensus points. Uh, so uh, either uh, Graham or Jonathan, can you give us sort of a simplified uh, or a thumbnail of the, of the Delphi method? I'll say a few words, although John's already said a bit. Um, yeah, I think the term Delphi originally came from the, Del- the Delphi or Delphi oracle in Greece, um, which gave predictions about what would happen in the future. Uh, my understanding is that this method was originally developed in the 40s and 50s as a way of making forecasts or predictions, especially in the area of technology, you know, what would, what would develop next and so on and so forth. Um, but the method was then extended to uh, enable a variety of different groups with different purposes to use it, and we don't use it for forecasting and prediction. We, we use it really to try and get good judgment. Um, so let me just explain. The basic belief is a belief in collective intelligence, that if you have a bunch of people, they're more apt to make a good judgment 
uh, than one person or two people. And so we have about 24 people on the panel. We also have people from very different occupations and backgrounds. So, for example, as you mentioned, John's an engineer. My background was religious studies and peace studies. That's considered to be a good thing. There's a deliberate diversity in backgrounds. Um, the other thing about this process, is, as John mentioned before, is we don't sit down and talk to each other. We don't email each other. We don't phone each other. We are uh, sent uh, proposals or statements. Uh, this and that, A, B, C, whatever, uh, are wrong with the official story of 9-11. And we individually study these points, and we research them, and we use our judgment, our skills, and we rate them on a scale of one to six. Is this statement very, do we strongly, very strongly agree with it? You know, do we sort of agree with it? And so on. And everybody does that individually. And then the coordinators put it together, compile it, and a point will not be accepted into the consensus process. It won't be posted on the website as accepted until 85% of the people on the panel rate it uh, as either something they strongly agree with or agree with. And that may take several rounds. So the statement comes to us, we say, I don't like this, this part's wrong, this part isn't supported by evidence. Coordinators have to take all those comments into consideration. They have to revise the statement. They have to send it around. So the statement gradually evolves. And it will ultimately either be accepted with many revisions or it will be rejected, which sometimes happens. But one thing you can be sure of, and that is that if it finally gets accepted as one of those points posted on the site, it has been scrutinized, it has been considered, reflected on by 24 people from different backgrounds, and, um, and most of whom are specialists in their field. So that, that's what I'll say for now about the, <coughs> excuse me, the Delphi method. John, what would you like to add? No, I think you've covered it very well, Graham. The, I, if I could jump in and, and uh, play devil's advocate, devil's advocate, advocate here for a moment, sure. uh, and that is that someone might be sitting back and saying, "Well, consensus doesn't necessarily mean that this is, you know, proof, or uh, you know, this is not necessarily science. Uh, it may be part of the scientific process, but cons- you know, science isn't about consensus. How, how do you respond to that?" Uh, I have lots to say, but John, why don't you start? Sure. Um, each consensus point gives, um, getting a little bit ahead here, but gives the official account, and then the rebuttal is all pretty much based on science, at least some of the recent ones we've just done. Um, so it is, uh, there is a lot of science in this, and it's things that are kind of undebatable in science, like fundamental laws of physics, uh, melting points of steel. Um, uh, acceleration of gravity, those types of things. So even though it's a consensus, each consensus point brings in uh, the scientific method, the science, the evidence, the testimonial evidence. It brings in hard science um, for each individual point. So, like I said, even though it's a consensus, it doesn't mean that it's just a, just kind of a warm and fuzzy feeling about this. It's real hard science behind each one of these. Okay, my other, my other point yeah, would could, be... Could I just say... Certainly, yes. That? Go I, ahead, Graham. I, yeah, I completely agree with what John has said. 
But I also want to acknowledge what I think is true, namely that uh, the fact that 24 people agree on something doesn't mean it's true. That's absolutely correct. Uh, and, and we're not saying to the world, you can be absolutely sure that everything we say is true. No, I mean, that, that, that's not something that can be claimed. What we're saying is that 24 people uh, who are reasonably smart, different backgrounds, studied this carefully, are telling you these are serious points that have been carefully looked at. And if you study them, we think you'll see that they, they do have uh, the support of science and, and they do have strong evidence. So that's, that's how I'd present it. All right. My, other, my final point on that, again, playing devil's advocate, would be that someone might say, but you all are members of a 9-11 consensus panel, so you, there is a like-mindedness there. How difficult would it be to find consensus? I don't want to spend too much – I don't want to put too fine, too fine a point on it. I, I do want to get to the consensus points, but just get a, a, a quick comment from each of you on that point. Sure. Do you want to go ahead, John? Yeah, uh, it, it's it's actually kind of surprising. One would think that uh, if if you're aware of uh, if you're quote a 9/11 truther, as a lot of people like to brand people, as that is, you don't agree with the official story, then all of us in this 9/11 truther camp, if you will, agree. But amazingly, uh, you're going to find there's quite a bit of disagreement within the group. Um, there's a there's an awful lot of dialogue. For example on this whole issue of, of the Pentagon strike, where there's, there's significant disagreement about uh, whether the plane hit the Pentagon or something else may have hit the Pentagon. And there's a lot of, uh, like I say, a lot of disagreement. Another disagreement may be as far as how the Twin Towers came down. Um, there's some disagreement there as far as, you know, was it directed energy weapons that brought it down? Was it uh, some sort of mini nuclear devices that brought it down? Or was it some sort of thermitic devices, or was thermite or nanothermite involved in, in taking these things down. So the consensus points, actually, there is quite a bit of disagreement, and uh, those things that we do disagree on is not one of the points that you're going to see out there. All right. Jonathan Cole and Dr. Graham McQueen, two members of the 9-11 Consensus Panel here on The Conspiracy Show. Now, the, we should Richard, point... Richard, yes. Richard, I know I keep interrupting you, but can I add something to that? Yes. Um, I agree, again, with what John said, but I just want to make one thing clear. Um, we're not telling people, you know, we're all big shots and we're experts, and if we agree on something, it must be right, so, so please trust us and just accept that what we say is right. Absolutely not saying that at all. What we're saying is we've spent a lot of work coming up with some points that we hope you'll look at. Now, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You want to, we want people to look at the points read what we've written, look at the supporting evidence, think about it, make up your own mind. Don't trust us. So that's, that's the point I wanted to make. Ex excellent point. All right. <clears throat> we should point out also, the, these consensus points are sort of grouped together in categories. So we have a, general consensus points, things like the claim regarding Osama bin Laden's involvement or the claim that there was no insider training, trading, rather, in put options before September 11th. We have uh, B, consensus points about the Twin Towers. C, consensus points about the collapse of World Trade Center 7. D, consensus points about the Pentagon. E, the 9-11 flights. Uh, F, the U.S. military exercises on and before 9-11. G, the political and military commands on 9-11. H, the hijackers on 9-11. I, the phone calls on 9-11. 
and uh, a category called V. These are consensus points relating to the official video exhibits regarding 9-11. So let's, let's be, why not begin with A, and let's talk about uh, the claim regarding Osama bin Laden. So set this up. How did you uh, sort of uh, uh, approach this? Of course, the official account, we can start with that. Osama bin Laden was responsible for the 9-11 attacks. This is what, you know, we hear as a sure. mantra in the mainstream media. Sure. Um, I don't mind starting. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what most people think, uh, or are supposed to think, that Osama did it. And uh, the point, if you look it up on the, on the, uh, uh, the website, the, the point we make against that is quite brief, to the point, <laughs> and it is that not only was there never a trial of Osama bin Laden to establish his guilt, he was never even charged with the crime. I mean, this is astonishing. The FBI did not indict him. They did not charge him. If you looked up on the FBI website, and they'll say, well, these guys are, you know, have uh, been charged with the following crimes. Well, there was, old, there was old Osama, and he was charged with a couple of things, but he wasn't charged with 9-11. And uh, this has been acknowledged repeatedly, by the way. There's no, there's no dispute about that. And we think it's kind of important that the public should know that. Um, when uh, a reporter phoned the FBI and talked to a spokesperson and said, I don't get it, why, why isn't he listed as charged with this crime? The guy said, well, we don't have any hard evidence. And again, the reporter thought that was stunning. Well, you know, why, why doesn't the public know about this? So that's, that's the kind of question we're raising about Osama. Uh, did you uh, examine, was there any consideration given to the the uh, the video, which, of course, the Bush administration held up as a smoking gun. There was this shadowy, sort of out-of-focus, bearded right. man, which is about all we could tell from this video right. that was magically pulled from the rubble in Afghanistan, purporting to be Osama bin Laden, where he supposedly is acknowledging or, 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 or uh, taking credit for the 9-11 attacks. Right. By the way, John, uh, leap in here at any time, Okay. Yeah, I think the only thing I was going to add, not only was Osama bin Laden not uh, accused of the crime of 9-11, the entire murder of 3,000 people was not even considered a crime by the United States government, which is sort of an interesting side fact in, it, in itself. One would think that the largest destruction on U.S. soil, a largest attack of 3,000 people, would at least be considered a crime, but it never was, and so it never had to be investigated as a crime using standard crime techniques for investigation. Was it considered a declaration of war, and is that then the reason? Uh, I mean, are, are there different rules? Is that perhaps, one could argue, why the FBI uh, d wasn't, you know, gathering evidence to, to uh, indict Osama bin Laden because this was being handled, this was considered a military matter? Uh, it could be, and I, I believe they did call it an act of war, even though there was no central government or central entity, if you will, uh, that we were having a war with. It was a generalized war that we're still having, the, the, the war of terrorism, I suppose. Yeah, the, uh, the statement that it was an act of war was made almost immediately um, uh, on public television by a, re a whole series of people on the day of 9-11. And then Bush himself said this, I believe it was the day after, and it became kind of the mantra, this was an act of war. And, of course, they wanted it to be an act of war because... 
That way you can respond with war and you can use your military-industrial complex, which is what currently uh, most distinguishes the United States. It's the most powerful one, uh, has the most powerful military in the world. You want to use it. And um, by the way, you know, the, the FBI did originally declare this, the, the various sites crime scenes, but then they proceeded to violate the crime scene and violate every conceivable um, rule of how you protect forensic evidence. You, they shipped, they, they allowed the steel to be shipped away from the World Trade Center. They allowed people to wander onto the site and contaminate eyewitnesses by telling them what they had and hadn't seen. Um, really, you know, there were other major things that they that they apparently didn't even look for, like explosive residue in the dust. So, I mean, one of the one of the most staggering things about this is how um, how corrupt, really, the investigating agencies have been. We should also point out that on the uh, nine or the consensus nine eleven dot org uh, site, underneath the uh, point G one, a claim regarding Osama bin Laden, you you have links to a number of articles, including one in the Guardian newspaper dated October fourteenth, two thousand and one. People may not be familiar with this. Uh, the headline here, Bush rejects Taliban offer to hand bin Laden over. Right. Yeah, the Taliban made at least two, maybe it was three, I can't remember, offers. Um, they said, you know, I mean, we'll hand the guy over, give us give us some evidence, give us something. And they offered various scenarios, you know, you could have him tried here, you could have him tried there. Um, and you'll probably remember what Bush's reply was. He said, you know, we, um, we're not negotiating. Um, hand them over. And uh, the Taliban had their own form of stubbornness. They didn't want to just hand them over. And so, of course, the predictable happened. The, what was planned happened. And by the way, I was in the region. I was just across the border from Afghanistan and Pakistan a few months before 9-11. And we were, I was told at that time the U.S. would be invading soon. So, I mean, this was planned well in advance. All right, uh, Dr. Graham McQueen and Jonathan Cole, stay with us. Members of the Consensus 9-11 panel as we discuss 37 consensus points that contradict the official version of 9-11. Back with more. Stay with us. And we are commemorating uh, the 12th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. And... uh, it's, I'm trying to, you know, to pick some consensus points here as we as we discuss with uh, two of the panel members of the 9/11 consensus panel. 37 consensus points they've released online, which contradict the official version. And I'm trying to pick things. Obviously, we need a five-hour show to go through all 37. I'm trying to pick things here that maybe people may not be aware of some of these things. I mean, we've discussed 9/11 obviously uh, countless times in this program. Uh, however, I, I want to jump down to uh, a consensus point. Uh, category E, consensus points about the 9-11 flights. And uh, this has to do with the claim regarding hijacked passenger jets. Uh, Jonathan Cole and Dr. Graham McQueen, uh, two of the panel members, uh, join us. And, of course, the uh, the official count is that the 9-11 Commission report holds that four airplanes, American Airlines Flights 11 and 77 and United Airlines Flight 93 and 175, were hijacked on 9-11. Let's let's talk about the best evidence uh, here that uh, there was something very suspicious uh, about just the actual, you know, uh, official account that these, in fact, were hijacked passenger jets. Uh, 
I'm just going to leap in here, and uh, John, uh, you know, do do what you want. Add more, by all means. Uh, let me give you just an example, Richard, of what what we mean here when we mean uh, when we talk about anomalies in the 9/11 flights. One of the examples you'll see on our site is the hijack code. When a plane, when a passenger plane is in the process of being hijacked, <clears throat> the pilot or co-pilot are supposed to punch in a code. It's, a, I believe, a four-digit code, and it supposedly takes maybe three seconds to punch yeah, it in. I think it's 7,700 into the transponder, I believe. There you go. I think you've got 70, 7,500. I've got the so website 7, open. 7,500, maybe you're right. Maybe it's 7,500. Yes, 7,500. I would imagine they would change that from time to time. Who knows? But the point is it's four numbers, okay? And it's close to their hand. It's easy to do, and, of course, it's designed that way. It needs to be distinctive so the people on the ground know what's going on, but you need to be able to do it quickly and easily, and they're trained to do it. Now, <clears throat> here's the thing. When you add up all the pilots and co-pilots on four flights, you get eight guys, and none of them punched in the hijack code. Now, you might say, oh, well, they were, they were taken by surprise, and that, that's why on the site we, we especially mention Flight 93, because that's the one where supposedly... Uh, the passengers said, "Let's roll," and they, you know, they over, they burst through the door and overpowered the hijackers, and the plane crashed, and so on. Well, according to the official story, it took over 30 seconds for them to actually. Uh, sorry, it took the hijackers over 30 seconds to burst in and overpower the pilot and the co-pilot, and it's it's really difficult to picture in that case why neither of these guys punched in 7,500 or whatever the numbers would be, but they didn't. Nobody did. And that is enough to make people scratch their head and go, well, why? You know, is there something wrong with this story? But John, did you want anything? No, I, I think you pretty well covered it. Okay. All right. Uh, let's move along then. We're going to come up. This is a short segment, uh, so we'll be coming up on a break here soon. Yeah. Uh, but I want to I want to jump down to uh, uh, consensus points about U.S. military exercises on and before 9/11. And uh, of course, we we, we heard uh, you know people like Doc, uh, Condoleezza Rice saying uh, there was no way we could have anticipated planes slamming into buildings, planes being used as missiles. Uh, we heard this over and over again, and, and point uh, ME1 uh, addresses this. Did military exercises show the military was prepared for domestic as well as foreign hijackings? Yeah, John, do you want to start us off? Yeah, on, on, on September 11th, um, there were, interestingly, military training drills that were going on that just about mimicked what almost actually happened uh, in, in, in real life. And uh, a lot of those exercises, um, for example, uh, a lot of the exercises mimicked um, planes crashing into towers, uh, which, of course, is what exactly what happened there. And uh, those exercises I don't think were ever really elaborated on in, in, the, official, in the official story. Moreover, they sent a lot of the planes um, away from the area, uh, during the attacks, uh, so that they weren't even around to scramble to to uh, to intercept those those hijacked planes. So there's a lot of questions relative to the whole um, 
whole military response and to the whole um, whole fact that there were mock exercises going on that mimicked the entire event of the day. I'm going to take a break here, but uh, you, you also cite here in the, the section, U.S. Medicine, this is a publication, reported that two health clinics housed within the Pentagon trained for a hijacked airplane to hit the Pentagon in May of 2001. Though the Department of Defense had no capability in place to protect the Pentagon from an ersatz guided missile in the form of a hijacked 757 or 757 airliner, uh, Defense Department medical personnel trained for exactly that scenario just a few months before the September 11th attacks. Back with more of my conversation with two members of the 9-11 consensus panel. Don't go away. Next week on the program, uh, Phil Stanford will be with us. Uh, the book is White House Call Girl, The Real Watergate Story. And, of course, we've heard, you know, for 40 years the official Woodward and Bernstein uh, version of the uh, the famous uh, Watergate Hotel or apartments and uh, the break-in there that brought down Tricky Dick Nixon. Uh, well, now we're going to hear what has been described as the real Watergate story. And uh, this gleaned from the little black book of a stripper who ran a call girl operation in Washington, D.C., uh, obviously, you know, who included some a pretty, uh, in terms of her clients, some pretty high rollers and powerful players in Washington, D.C. So that's uh, next week on The Conspiracy Show, White House Call Girl with uh, Phil Stanford. Right now, uh, Dr. Graham McQueen and Jonathan Cole uh, stay with us from the Consensus 9-11 panel. Again, the website, consensus911.org. They've released online 37 consensus points. Uh, and uh, I, I want to talk about uh, what's called Point MC-3, the claim about the time of Dick Cheney's entry into the White House uh, bunker. Of course, Vice President Dick Cheney took, ch- took charge of the government's response to the 9-11 attacks uh, after he entered something called the PEOC, the Presidential Emergency Operations Center, or a.k.a. the bunker. Uh, and the 9-11 Commission report states that Cheney did not enter the PEOC until almost 10 a.m., almost 20 minutes after the, the violent uh, event at the Pentagon that killed more than 1,000 people. Uh, so Jonathan uh, Graham, uh, let's hear the best evidence regarding that claim. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll start and say one or two things. Um, <clears throat> well, the gist is we have eyewitness evidence, which seems pretty credible, which contradicts that. And it doesn't just contradict the claim of, 10 o'clock by a few seconds or even a couple of minutes, contradicts it by over half an hour, which is a heck of a lot of time when you think about it, especially when we put it in the context of, of what, where this point fits within our uh, um, 9-11 consensus panel. I mean, there's a whole category here showing that six people in positions of authority on 9-11, six important people were not where they said they were, or not doing what they claimed they were doing. And that's, that's pretty big. So here's Cheney. Yeah, 9-11 Commission says, you know, that, um, that he was there at 10. Well, Secretary of Transportation, Norman Mineta, said that, you know, he was there at 9.20 a.m. and uh, heard a very important conversation between Cheney and a young man who kept coming back and reporting it, you know, it's this many miles out, it's that many miles out. Who knows what he was talking about, but presumably a plane of some sort. And um, 
he asked Cheney, do the orders still stand? And Cheney angrily says to him, of course they still stand. Have you heard anything to the contrary? Well, I mean, the whole conversation is fascinating, but for our present purposes, the gist is Mineta says Cheney was there long before the official story says he was. And how did the 9-11 Commission report handle Mineta's testimony? Did it bury it? Did it even include it in the, uh, in the report? Uh, John, leap in. My, my yeah. uh, memory is that it didn't have it at all. That, that's my understanding, too. And this is, this is sort of one of, the, one of the classic cases of where there's a disagreement or a complete, uh, complete change in times between what we were officially told versus what other testimony is out there. Again, we have the commission report said it happened at 10 o'clock, or yeah, 10 a.m., and um, Norma Mineta says 9.20. This is also similar to some other points that are out there that we just released relative to some phone calls by Todd Beamer, where there's some discrepancies, significant discrepancies in those phone calls, as well as some discrepancies, and I'm jumping a little bit here, but there's a lot of discrepancies uh, relative to some seismic waves uh, that were felt at the Palisades versus when the airplanes hit. So this is just one more example of where there's there's questions out there as far as why are we having discrepancies on such a major event? On such a major event, there really shouldn't be any. It should be pretty well nailed down, and it's not. You, you mentioned Todd Beamer, so let's talk about the famous cell, call, cell phone call, the Let's Roll call from Flight 93, which uh, ended up crashing near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And I, I, whenever I hear that Let's Roll, of course, it harkens back to uh, 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 Barry Levinson's Wag the Dog, you know, where every war needs a, uh, a song. And uh, I believe it was Neil Young who, who ended up uh, uh, penning a song, uh, whether it included the lyrics Let's Roll or that was the actual title. But so much of sort of the 9-11 official narrative has been sort of hangs on the these cell phone calls, whether it's Barbara Olson, uh, particularly Barbara Olson, uh, but also Todd Beamer. Let's uh, because I think Barbara Olson is so central to the narrative in terms of you know they were wearing they had red uh, they had red uh, uh, bandanas or they they had box cutters. Uh, all of this information came from the Barbara Olson uh, a cell phone call. So so let's talk about uh, about that now. Th- this again is for people trying to follow along at home. This is under category I, consensus points about the phone calls on 9-11. And uh, Barbara Olson, this is point PC2. Uh, so let's, let's talk a little bit about that if we could. Uh, Barbara Olson, of course, the, uh, the wife, uh, CNN commentator, and also the wife of U.S. Solicitor General uh, Ted Olson. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll say a couple of words about it, Richard, and then John can add it. Yeah, so um, Barbara Olson and her husband, both famous, <clears throat> both uh, politically on the right. Um, Barbara Olson, as you <clears throat> pointed out, was supposedly on Flight 77 and uh, supposedly phoned her husband. And her description of what was happening on the plane was, as you say, very important in cementing the uh, in place the image that many of us have of what was happening on those flights. She's the one... As far as I know, she's the only one who mentioned the box cutters. And, you know, now, of course, 9-11, people think of terrorists with box cutters. So this, this detail was quite important. Um, so what's the problem? <clears throat> well, the problem is that, first of all, how did she phone her husband? 
Was it by cell phone or was it by a seatback phone? They have quite different technologies. Her husband, Ted, kind of waffled and went back and forth between one and the other. The problem is that the, the flight was way too high uh, for it to have been a cell phone call, and the FBI indirectly acknowledged that at the Musawi trial uh, by essentially changing the story, not just in Olson's case, but in almost all the cases of claimed cell phone calls and saying, well, no, there, weren't, there were only like two cell phone calls because they clearly realized that this part of the story just wasn't holding water. So um, Barbara Olson didn't phone by cell phone. Um, what did she phone then by? Well, the air phones, unfortunately, the best evidence we have at this point is that the air phones on those particular uh, planes at that time had been disconnected. Um, so how the heck did she phone? And there are no credible phone records that have been brought forward, either from seatback or cell or anything else, that show that she phoned Ted Olson. So that's a real problem. So again, the air phones that the air phone that she would have likely have, or could have used, uh, and these are the air phones people may remember, these were on the backs of the seats uh, on, on airliners. Uh, and this from, uh, from uh, former uh, commercial airline pilots confirming, and these are people that flew Boeing 757s and 67s for American Airlines, the air phones were deactivated from these uh, carriers in early or mid-2001. They'd been deactivated for quite some time prior to September 2001. So if she had no, there were no records of a cell phone call being made and there's no air phones on the plane, did, in fact, Barbara Olson make any calls to Ted Olson, the, uh, the Solicitor General? That's the, that's the big question. And again, so much of the narrative, the official narrative, rests on these supposed calls, which appear not to have made, taken place. That's right, Richard. And while we're at it, um, there, there, were a lot of, there were a number of people who were quite insistent initially that they'd been phoned um, by their loved one or the person that they knew, that they'd been phoned on a cell phone. For example, they would say, well, I know it was a cell phone because I looked at it. I looked at my phone, and it had, you know, his number or his name came up. So I know it was a cell phone. And so it's quite astonishing later when the FBI changes all that and says, um, actually, no, it wasn't a cell phone call. <coughs> because by and, that and time, people had pointed out that there's no way it was a cell phone at 30,000 30, feet. Uh, Jonathan, why should we doubt the, uh, the Todd Beamer let's roll cell phone call? Well, the Todd Beamer uh, call, according to the official uh, narrative, was that uh, he called at 9.28, and those were based on some uh, studies from the NTSB, the FAA, and um, the Aircraft Communication and Reporting System. And so they, they, they keep t- telling us that it would be at 9.28 in the morning when this happened. The problem is, later on in 2006 at the Masawi trial, um, there's also testimony that uh, that Todd Beamer called uh, the supervisor Lisa Jefferson at 9:48. Okay, well 9:48 is 20 minutes later than 9:28. So here in the own government, uh, two government investigations, we have a completely different time frame as far as when he called. Uh, so that's one problem uh, with the Todd Beamer thing. That has a serious question that was never answered. Um, I think the other thing that you point out uh, in 
on the on the website is is that uh, uh, Todd Beamer originally tried to call his wife. He was uh, he was trying to make a credit call wife, uh, call to his wife, but his call got routed to uh, to Verizon customer service operator named Phyllis Johnson, who you named you mentioned. Uh, she then forwarded the call to Jefferson, but he continued to talk to Jefferson rather than have her transfer him to his wife because, uh, you know, she was pregnant at the time. And apparently he said he didn't want to upset her, but he knew he was going to, to die. Uh, and yet he didn't want to have that last contact with his pregnant wife, which just seems rather odd. I mean, that's not necessarily indicative of anything, I suppose, but it's one of those head scratchers. I would agree that it's a head scratcher. And um, for people who are listening, I just wanted to say also that when I first got into this 9-11 stuff, which was, I guess, somewhere around 2005, I said to myself, you know, I don't want to waste my time if this is all nonsense. So when I look at the evidence, I'm first of all going to acknowledge that, you know, coincidences happen, okay? You know, we've all experienced this in our life. Uh, so if, if there's a coincidence, I'm going to let it be. I'm going to say, okay, it happened. I'm also going to allow there to be a lot of incompetence, a lot of mistakes happening. So maybe they were supposed to shoot down the plane, but they didn't because they goofed. Well, all right, people goof. And as I went into it, I said, I'm just going to, I'm going to allow them to goof. I'm going to allow coincidences. I'm going to, I'm going to look for stuff that's really hard evidence. And that's where John's expertise especially comes in because the collapses of these buildings are one of the best examples of, you know, I'm sorry, but if you break the laws of physics in your story, I'm going to reject your story. That's what I mean by really tough evidence. Well, regrettably, we don't have uh, a time to discuss the uh, the Twin Towers tonight. We've done that <laughs> ma- on many times on many occasions, but we'll, uh, we'll have both of you back on and we will do just that. In the meantime, uh, Jonathan Cole and Dr. Graham McQueen, thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, you're quite Thank welcome. you. And again, the website, www.consensus911.org. Check it out. My website, richardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Hey, welcome aboard. Good to have you with me. And uh, also, welcome aboard to WEZU-FM 95.9 in Roanoke, Rapids, North Carolina. Jeez, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's uh, Roanoke Rapids, I believe, North Carolina. And uh, if, I, if I've mispronounced that, please let me know. Would love to hear from you. WEZU-FM 95.9 in the great state of North Carolina. Beautiful state. I've spent a lot of time there driving through uh, the, uh, the mountains. And uh, it's just uh, refreshing to the soul. And uh, if you ever get a chance uh, to spend some time down there in the Carolinas, go, by all means. Now, uh, I want to also, just a little programming note here. Uh, normally, uh, the, uh, the second program of the month, uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, joins us for the first half of the hour. And uh, Rosemary isn't with us tonight. Uh, she will be with us for the full hour next, next week. Uh, we're going to do a whole hour. We just thought we'd, uh, we'd set that aside. And uh, she's got a new book out. Uh, dealing with afterlife, uh, dream messages from the afterlife, and uh, it's going to be it's going to be a, a really powerful hour. So we're going to move Rosemary into next week, and uh, so you want to be listening for that. Now, this next hour, 
we're going to be talking about something that's, I know, near and dear to many of your hearts, and that's professional sports, whether it's football, basketball, uh, hockey, golf, you name it. And uh, my guest really, I think, has uh, uh, tackled, uh, pun intended, uh, a pretty important uh, uh, explosive uh, topic here. Uh, others have gone down this road and, and a price has been paid for taking on big professional sports. Uh, this is actually Brian Tui's second uh, book in, uh, in this regard. This one is entitled Larceny Games, Sports Gambling, Game Fixing, and the FBI. And uh, previously, uh, Brian wrote, The Fix is In, The Showbiz Manipulation of the NFL, MLB, or Major League Baseball, the NBA, NHL, and NASCAR. And it's always uh, great to have uh, Brian back on the program as we discuss sports gambling, game fixing, and the FBI. Brian, how are you? Fine. How are you doing tonight, Richard? I'm very well, thank you. So, uh, you, 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 I mentioned that you know that others have have, have, have taken on, uh, you know, organizations like the NFL and paid the price. In fact, you begin Larceny Games with such a story. Tell me about this individual. Uh, who I guess was sort of you. I, I guess you sought his counsel when you started to write this book because he had also tried to cover sort of this area with the NFL and and uh, sort of paid uh, a terrible price. Yes, uh, the author was Dan Moldea. He wrote a book called Interference: How Organized Crime Influences Professional Football. And Dan, like myself, he's not a sports writer, and he still went after the NFL. He did. He was into investigative reporting. He used to do books about organized crime mainly, and he would deal how they got into the Teamsters and how they got into Hollywood and that sort of thing. And so he decided to go after organized crime and the NFL. And when he finished writing his book, which came out back in 1989, the NFL literally hired somebody to do a hatch job and write a negative review of the book in the New York Times. And that, according to him, cut his legs out from under him, cut legs out from underneath the sales of the book. And literally, his career never recovered, even though he sued the New York Times, and it took a, a, this court case all the way almost to the Supreme Court. Um, he still wound up losing, and it, it affected the way he viewed the rest of his career. And so when I started writing this book, he, he was one of the people I sought out to talk to and you know, get some information from, and he literally warned me, don't write this book because they're going to do the same thing to you. It sounds from the description that you gave, that the the National Football League almost has a secret police or an intelligence division. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, it's very fair. They have what they call, every league has what they call a security division. And this is staffed with former members of the FBI, the CIA, the DEA, Secret Service, law enforcement. And even though these people don't possess police powers, you know, they can't make arrests, they can't do wiretaps, their job is basically to keep things quiet, as far as I can tell. Their job is to keep things as under wraps as they can so the leagues don't get black eyes over all these different sort of scandals. And these are the type of guys who went after Moldea, and these would probably be the guys, if they decide to go after me, who will be on my case. You also pointed out in the, in the book that uh, the late Howard Cosell, I was a, a big fan of Howard Cosell, and he did uh, these uh, weekly commentaries for, for ABC and, uh, you know, at some very outspoken, obviously, those who remember uh, Howard Cosell uh, and, and was often, particularly towards the end of his career and end of his life, very critical uh, of, uh, of the NFL. And he complained about essentially being 
well, they, the, these people, what, what, what did the NFL do to Howard Cosell? Well, it wasn't just to Howard Cosell. It's what the NFL, when they hired Pete Rozelle as commissioner back in 1960, Pete Rozelle's background was public relations, PR. And he basically created this machine within the NFL that would monitor everything that was, literally everything that was written and spoken about the league. And they would create dossiers on the sports writers and that sort of thing. And when the sports writers would write negative things about the NFL, they would hear from the NFL. And Cosell was kind of one of the first guys to make this really public knowledge. And he said, look, they're, they monitor everything I do. They record every show I broadcast on the air, be it through radio or television, and they're watching me. And they're watching all these people. And it's something you have to be leery of, especially at, back at that time. They kept hiring more and more former athletes, more and more people who had NFL backgrounds as it was to broadcast their games and cover the sport. And he worried that really the NFL was just – it was controlling the message completely, and there was no outside influence or no outside oversight upon the league. Brian Tui is with us, uh, the author of Larceny Games, Sports Gambling, Game Fixing, uh, and the FBI. Now, uh, Brian, as I mentioned previously, you wrote The Fixes In, the showbiz manipulation of the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, NHL, and NASCAR. Uh, maybe if you could just sort of uh, contrast the two and how you're sort of coming at this from a slightly different angle this time. What did you mean in, in The Fixes In by the showbiz manipulation of these sports? What I talk about in The Fixes In was how I believe that the major sports leagues will actually manipulate and outright influence the outcome of their own games. And they'll do it because it's a product, their business, and their, their product is entertainment. It's not necessarily sport, it's entertainment, and they need people to tune in. They need the television ratings and the advertising dollars that come from that. And so when need be, the leagues will tweak certain games to make sure certain storylines last longer than they should. And the scary part of that is it's not illegal for the leagues to do that. They can completely legally fix their own games. And when I was promoting that book, I'd have a lot of sports radio show hosts just lambast me for that because they'd say, well, you know, games have never been fixed. How can you say the league would fix their own game when you can't prove that, you know, games have been fixed in the past? Well, that's what I do with larceny games. I said, all right, you guys, you want me to prove that games have been fixed? Here's what I'll do. So what I did is I went to the FBI and got all the information the FBI had, literally every file the FBI had about investigations into what they call sports bribery, which is game fixing, and I put it all together into this book, Larceny Games. And I think if a person reads this book, they'll come away knowing full well that certainly games have been fixed in the past despite these leagues telling you this hasn't occurred. Well, let's, let's uh, maybe cite some specific examples, uh, uh, Brian. Is there a, a particular uh, – let's start with football since we began the discussion about the NFL. Uh, can, you, can you cite an example uh, of uh, a, a, an NFL game, whether it's a Super Bowl game, that's been fixed and then maybe perhaps cite some evidence for that? Well, I think one of the biggest things that I found when I was digging through all these files – was the NFL, for example, says they've never had a game fixed ever by anyone, not organized crime, not by gamblers, no one. And I found a file dating back to, I think it was 1962 or so, where this uh, owner, um, what's his name? I just blanked out, Harry Weisberg. He was the owner at one point of the Detroit Lions and the co-owner of the Washington Redskins, and he was founded basically what became the New York Jets and the AFL, and this owner went straight to the FBI one day, walked into their office in New York City, and said, look, I know my team 
through last week's game. And he said, and I know gamblers are influencing the outcomes both in games in the AFL and in the NFL. And the funny part of it is, is at the time in 1962, this was not the FBI's jurisdiction. They had no reason to investigate it because the sports bribery law, which was passed in 1964 and made it a federal crime to fix a game, to bribe someone to fix a game, hadn't been passed. So the FBI took his information, said thanks, and just basically set it aside. But here you have an owner of three current NFL franchises, a guy who owned pieces of them all at one time, and he said games have been fixed. Okay, so uh, face. Uh, what the legal tell you? But these were these were prior to a, a law being enacted, which would make such uh, skullduggery illegal, I guess. On uh, a federal level, are there more there were, recent? There were state level um, offenses. I mean, in New York State, there was you know a law against fixing the game. But he decided, for whatever ah, reason, to right. approach the FBI with this. Or are there more recent examples? Well, the interesting thing with the FBI files is the fact that they basically end. And that's the scary part for me, is these files, they st- basically start from 1964 when this law was passed. But come the 1980s, the network of informants and sources the FBI built up, dating back to that time period in the 60s, had fallen apart. And Reagan tasked the FBI with fighting the war on drugs. So the FBI, in a very real sense, stopped investigating fixed games because they couldn't get convictions. They had a hard time even getting arrests. And they said, look, if something falls into our lap, we'll investigate it. But just trying to chase down all these rumors and innuendo when we can't get hard evidence on the fact that games have been fixed because if you don't get a wiretap and you don't get someone to confess to it, they got nothing to go on, unfortunately. You can't look at the game film and say, oh, yeah, that guy did that on purpose, that referee made a bad call on purpose, because everybody has a bad game. So Indeed. the FBI had a real issue with it and essentially quit investigating. Well, excuse my naivete, but how does one fix a football game? You've got, what, a, a total of about 52 players on each team. Uh, how does the mo- Is it the mob, and, and, and who do they go to? Do they go to the quarterback? Do they go to the place kicker? Do they go to the referee? How does that work? Well, I think with fixing the game, it's really a crime of opportunity. And, you know, people tell me, oh, it's really hard to fix a game. Well, it was really hard for man to get to the moon, you know, and it was really hard. It's really hard to climb Mount Everest. But I don't think it's that hard to convince an athlete, either through blackmail or just through bribery, to underperform in a sporting event. I don't think that's that difficult to do. You just have to have the opportunity and the way to get in. The tricky thing is, is we've seen around the world, in soccer, in tennis, and in cricket recently. I mean, as recently as earlier this year, numerous matches have been fixed. And the reason we know this is because sports gambling is legal in most of Europe, and it's monitored. So what happens in Europe is that with these soccer matches and tennis matches is they see strange money showing up on games. They see odds moving in ways that they shouldn't necessarily be moving, and then the result follows that money and those odds. So then they investigate that, they follow the money, and it usually winds up being some sort of criminal activity. But here in the United States, at least, sports gambling is, for the most part, illegal, except in the state of Nevada. So literally 99% of the gambling done in the United States is done illegally, and no one's monitoring it, yet billions upon billions are being wagered on these games. Brian Tui is with us, the author of Larceny Games. When we come back, we'll talk about the uh, Tim Donahue uh, NBA point-shaving scandal. Of course, he was a, uh, an NBA ref who was accused of shaving points. And uh, also, uh, a story that just broke 
just around the time your book was published, and that was uh, Bobby Riggs, of course, and Billie Jean King, The Great Battle of the Sexes in 1973, I believe, at the Houston Astrodome, and, uh, and quite an admission from someone close to Bobby Riggs just a couple of weeks ago. Back with more of my conversation with Brian when The Conspiracy Show continues. Don't go away. Welcome back. Brian Tui is with us, the author of Larceny Games. A larceny game, a definition uh, from uh, Brian's website. It's a slang term used in the late 50s, early 60s to describe a sporting event fixed by a gambler and or mobster for gambling purposes uh, and to investigate claims uh, that uh, these various games have been fixed in the various professional leagues. Brian did something that uh, no one has done previously, uh, and that is to uh, you know, go to the FBI and uh, ask the, uh, the FBI what it knew with regards to sports bribery violations. And there were 411 files specifically relating to sports bribery dating from 1964 until as recently as 1990. Uh, now, I wanted to talk to you, to you about uh, the NBA for a moment. And uh, I, I probably am not pronouncing his name correctly. Is it Tim? Was it Tim Donaghy or Tim Don- Donaghy? Uh, I think it just depends on how you want to pronounce it. I've heard it both ways. Uh, now, this was a, a, a former NBA referee. He worked something like 772 regular season games in the NBA and uh, resigned in uh, 2007 before reports of an investigation by the FBI that he bet on games that he officiated during his last two seasons and that he made calls affecting the point spread in those games. What can you tell me about the Donaghy scandal? Well, the one thing about Donaghy is the fact that, well, actually two things. One is, had the FBI basically not arrested him, he'd probably still be an official in the NBA today. He was one of the higher-ranked officials they had. And the other thing with the Donaghy scandal is the fact that he really wasn't arrested, nor was he charged or jailed for fixing a game. Everybody kind of thinks he was, but that's not the case. He was he was arrested for gambling charges, but not for game fixing because neither the FBI nor the NBA really wanted to try to convict him of that because they knew how difficult of a road that would be, and they had him on the other charges pretty solidly. So a lot of people think he went down for game fixing, but that wasn't the case. What I find really interesting about the Donahue scandal is the fact that it really blows a lot of the myths out of the water about being able to detect a fixed game. And the fact is... Las Vegas, which everybody refers to in the United States as being the center of sports gambling, really isn't. And the fact is, Las Vegas didn't recognize what was going on with Donahue's games, despite the fact that he likely was influencing the outcome of these games. Las Vegas wasn't paying attention. They didn't catch it. And the FBI didn't catch it. Nobody was catching what was going on until the FBI stumbled across it in a wiretap in another unrelated organized crime investigation. Did the NBA not want to pursue this because uh, it, it was too difficult or because they just didn't want the publicity? I think a little of both. I think they realized to prove that he was fixing the game took a lot. And the bigger issue, I think the more prime issue with the NBA was the fact that it would affect our integrity. If they came out and said games were fixed by this guy and it was over the course of several seasons, then it was, you'd have to go back and say, well, which games did he fix? Which games did he influence? Did that cost game teams wins and losses? Could they have to cost teams playoff positions? I mean, there was a lot at stake for the NBA, and so they just really wanted to get it out and out of their way as fast as they could and not bring up those sorts of allegations. 
How widespread is this? Let's talk about the NBA. Uh, you know, was this just a case of one bad apple, or is it a case where there's one Tom, Tim Donaghy, there may be four, seven, a dozen? Well, one of the things I bring up in the book is the fact that there was a Hall of Fame NBA referee named uh, Saul Levy, and um, he, he fixed games. <laughs> I should say he didn't fix games. I shouldn't say that. He was known to definitely be betting on NBA games. And yet this was the guy who literally, I mean, I'm not exaggerating, wrote the rule book for NBA officials. And yet he was a known gambler. He had issues. And um, I'm sorry, I got his name wrong. I got confused. It's actually Mendy Rudolph. He was the guy. He's still a Hall of Fame NBA referee. So I'll leave you with another referee that was kicked out of the league for fixing games. But this guy, Mendy Rudolph, he was a known gambler. He was known to have problems. He was mentioned in FBI files of gambling on NBA games while he was a referee. And yet he was the guy who wrote the NBA officials' rule book. And so, I mean, it's, it's not – Donahue wasn't an isolated incident. It was just these other incidents, including Saul Levy and Mindy Rudolph, were forgotten about and ignored. And, you know, over time, these things just have a tendency to go away. So how does it – again, how does it work with an NBA referee, for example? He's betting on games in which he's officiating. And so how does he control the point spread? In Donahue's case, what he was doing was extremely clever. He wasn't calling bad fouls. He was calling fouls more often, and he was calling more obscure fouls that most officials wouldn't call. So he was actually grading higher amongst NBA officials and their little scoring system and making himself look very good, actually, in the eyes of the NBA and their officials by almost overdoing his job. And yet by doing that, he was able to influence the outcome of these games. And the scary part with Donahue was is he wasn't bribed to do this. He basically decided to do it on his own. And that's the thing I think a lot of people get in their head about when somebody wants to fix a game is that, you know, some shady character approaches this guy and convinces him to do it. Donahue did it on his own. And it's very likely in the past that other players and officials kind of had the same idea. They're like, you know, if our team's going to be bad and we're going to lose – Mount to make a little extra money on the side by gambling on this, by betting on these games when I know I can influence the outcome in my favor. In, in your previous book, The Fix is In, you, you spent some time talking about Michael Jordan, who, of course, uh, it w- was known or is known to be, to, to be quite a gambler. Uh, is it – I don't, I don't want to you know, cast aspersions on the great Michael Jordan, but are there, are there high-profile players – uh, do we know that in the past uh, or presently are gambling or are betting on the games in which they are playing? I'm certain there are guys today who are doing it. I'm sure of it. I mean, if you look up, if you go to Gamblers Anonymous website and you read the characteristics of like a compulsive or addictive gambler, they're the exact same characteristics you would want in a major league athlete. I mean, they're really identical. Um, but the question is, is who's doing it? How come, really, since Pete Rose, have we not seen a player, coach, or referee, really, besides Donnie, get busted for having some sort of gambling addiction? I mean, where is it? There's got to be people out there. And in, in larceny games, what I found was that, amazingly, a lot of the files actually dealt with really well-known named athletes. Some of these guys were Hall of Famers. I mean, guys 
like Bill Russell, guys like Bob Cousy, guys like Glenn Dawson, guys like George Blanda. I mean, these are guys who are in the Hall of Fame, guys who are considered legends, yet the FBI was investigating for gambling on games and maybe perhaps fixing games. Bobby Riggs, uh, of course, a great uh, Wimbledon champion, and uh, I believe at the age of uh, about 55, which at the time seemed ancient, it doesn't seem that old now, uh, but this famed battle of the sexes with uh, Billie Jean King, uh, it recently came to light uh, that, that uh, you know, Bobby, who was really in that, in that, in that match with Billie Jean King, really d- destroyed... Uh, uh, it's recently come to light that uh, that Bobby threw that match. What do you make of that? Well, Riggs was a known hustler. I mean, that's what he did once he kind of got out of the professional circuit is he started hustling people. <laughs> that was his thing. And if the story is accurate, he got in deep with some mobsters, and the mobster said, the way you get out of this is by throwing a match for us. Now, it's interesting because there's another mobster out there, this guy by the name of Michael Francis who was the big-time mobster. He actually had a hit out against him, but he became a born-again Christian when he got out of jail. And now he travels to the country, and he talks about his time in the mafia, and he also talks about game-fixing and how easy it is to get people who are jammed, what he calls jammed up when they have gambling debts, when they have you know, uh, drug problems and that sort of thing, how it's very easy to approach those athletes who are in trouble and get them to fix games to get out of trouble. So his story really kind of mirrors what happened with Riggs. But the interesting thing I find with the whole Riggs story is that it's 40 years later, it's an exhibition tennis match, and yet we still really don't know what happened that day. We can't prove that he fixed the game. It seemed like he probably fixed the match, but you can't prove it. People, one and of the things that people, that people forget is uh, that, um, that Riggs, uh, before playing King, because she originally declined yeah. uh, the match, he played and defeated soundly the top player in the world at the time, the female player in the world at the time, Margaret Court. She was, uh, as I say, the top female player in the world, and they played in May of 73, Mother's Day, and uh, he, uh, Riggs beat her in straight sets. I think it was 6-2, to 6-1. to one. Uh, So for those people that think, well, Bobby Riggs was just too old, you know, to beat uh, Billie Jean King, and that's why she defeated him, he still had, you know, he still had the stuff. So is it possible, I, and this was, the, I guess, the, the reasoning or the idea was that, that Riggs uh, defeated uh, Court so that people would bet on him yeah, in going into the match with that. King. Now, was he, was, he sort of, uh, at the, uh, was he sort of involved with the mob in over his head and, and they made him do this, do we know? That's, again, what that article kind of theorizes that that's exactly it, that he was in trouble and they needed a setup. And the problem back then was that, you know, it wasn't, tennis wasn't a huge bet upon sport here in the United States. It was, and this whole event, his whole promotion of the event made it a big deal. In fact, it's still to this day, I think the most attended tennis match in the history of the United States was his match against Billie Jean King at the Astrodome. So, I mean, they made significant waves and it created significant buzz. Interestingly, I think, is right now in the world, tennis is probably the third most bet-upon sport out there behind horse racing and soccer. Tennis is more bet-upon than the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, any of those. It would be be far easier to fix as well, wouldn't it? 
Well, exactly. When it's a one-on-one competition, it's a lot like boxing or you know mixed martial arts. You only have to get the one guy to get him to throw the match. And the scarier thing, too, now with tennis is they have what they call spot fixing, which is where you don't even have to throw an entire match. You can just throw a particular game, or you can even just throw a particular point within that game, and people can bet upon that and make money off of it. And that's one of the things they've been uncovering in tennis and in cricket, is, and even in soccer with penalties, these what they call spot fixes, where it's not throwing an entire match but just causing a certain event to happen within a game because there's so much in-game betting on these sports now, too. Brian Tui is with us, the author of uh, Larceny Games, talking about uh, sports gambling and game fixing uh, in uh, Major League Sports like the National Football League, the National Basketball Association, even the NHL. Our beloved hockey uh, Canadians is uh, is not uh, immune to this as well. Say it ain't so. Uh, Joe, going back to the 1919 Black Sox, of course, uh, that famous uh, uh, saying when... Uh, Shoeless Joe was uh, um, cornered by a young, uh, doe-eyed uh, baseball fan. Say it ain't so, uh, and we and we tend to think that these these uh, uh, you know the game fixes go back to uh, an, an earlier era, like the nineteen nineteen uh, Black Sox. But I was interested to learn that um, that the NHL. Uh, there was a, a famous incident going back to about 1948, I believe. Uh, can you tell me about uh, a, a game fixing in the National Hockey League? Well, game fixing in the NHL isn't very prominent because it's not one of the most heavily bet upon sports. And that's, I think, part of the whole deal, too, is if you bet, even today, if you bet an enormous amount of money on an NHL game, people are their heads are going to turn because they're not used to it. Whereas, like with the NFL... They say literally a billion dollars or more is bet illegally on the NFL every week. A billion dollars a week? Yes. My word. not more. <laughs> but that's why you can hide money within that illegal system is, you know, you throw an extra million dollars against the billion dollars, no one will notice it. I mean, it doesn't turn heads like that kind of money might in an NHL game. But going back to the 1940s, yeah, they, had, they caught one of the members of the Bruins, and his name escapes me right now. But he basically told the gambler, uh, maybe I just don't do so well tonight, <laughs> and we lose. And sure enough, he didn't do so well, and they lost, and unfortunately, he got busted for it. Um, but the one more interesting thing I find with the NHL, actually, is the fact that two of the founding members, um, Arthur Wirtz, whose family still owns the Blackhawks today, and uh, James Norris Jr., who at the time owned um, the Detroit Wet Rings, and actually part of the Blackhawks, too, at the time, back in the 40s and 50s, they conspired with a known mobster by the name of Frankie Carbo, and they controlled professional boxing for about 20 years in the United States. Wow. Oh, the uh, the, the player for the Bruins was Gabby Gallinger. There you go. Uh, along with um, uh, Bill Taylor. Their careers were cut short when Gallinger and Taylor were discovered gambling on their own teams and banned for life by the NHL. They were reinstated in 1970. And these are the longest suspensions in NHL history. Back with more of my conversation with Brian Tui, Larceny Games. Brian Tui is with us, the author of Larceny Games. $380 billion, that's with a B, $380 billion. That's the high-end estimate of how much money was wagered illegally on sporting events in the United States in 1999, according to the National Gambling Impact Study Commission. Taking the same study's low estimate, a mere $80 billion, into account, the figure still dwarfs the mere 
$2.76 billion wagered legally in the Nevada sports books in 2010. It's also nearly four times the amount of revenue generated by the NFL, MLB, Major League Baseball, I should say, National Basketball Association, and the NHL combined during the 2011-2012 season. Yet fans are supposed to believe those unaccounted for billions, most of which end up in organized crimes coffers, have no influence on professional sports and their outcomes. So, Brian, basically what you're saying is that these professional sports leagues are lying to their fans. Outright lying to them. Lying through their teeth to them about all of this. (laughs) And the big thing for me is the fact that right now the state of New Jersey is suing to legalize sports gambling within their state, to allow it to be gambled upon like it is in Nevada. And amazingly, the law that was passed by Congress back in 1996 called the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act uh, basically deputized the sports leagues to fight this legal battle for the government. And right now they're embroiled in this, and yet all the excuses these leagues make to supposedly try to keep sports gambling illegal in the United States are just hooey. They're nonsense. I mean, they say that if the sports gambling becomes legalized, then all fans will turn into gamblers, when in fact already they know many of the fans are watching because they are gambling. And then they also say that it's going to protect the integrity of the league. Well, if the NFL's never had a game fixed in its history, why would suddenly the legalization of sports gambling in the United States lead to all sorts of fixed football games if it's never happened before? When now, if we legalized it, we would actually have a monitoring system in place that would watch all of the money being wagered upon these games, and you would see strange things occur. And just like they do in soccer in Europe, you could follow that money and see what's actually going on. But right now, because it's all illegal, no one's watching what's going on. Uh, Brian, as I pointed out, this is your your second book on this particular topic. You've written other books, but uh, the the previous one, uh, The Fix is In. What do you think is worse, uh, a, a league... Uh, manipulating the outcome of a game for showbiz reasons. You know, if we if we drag this 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 uh, series on the final for seven games, it'll be more dramatic. It'll be a greater narrative. Uh, is that worse, or is the idea that certain players or or officials are betting on the games in which they're involved and somehow trying to either shave points to affect the spread or even affect the outcome of a game. What's what's worse, the showbiz manipulation or the gambling? That's a very good question, Richard. I, n- I never really thought about it, to be honest. I mean, either way, I think it affects what... Well, the problem, I think, what it is, is many fans assume these sports are pure and they're good. And they assume that because if they were in the place of those coaches or those players, that they would give, uh, you know, the cliches, they give 110%, take it to the next level each and every game, that they don't suspect anything like this could possibly happen. So even if, if it's the league doing it or if it's gamblers doing it or the players doing it on their own for gambling purposes, either way it's striking at the integrity and the purity of these games. And I think fans have to take off that fan hat and look at these games as a business, look at these players and coaches and referees as real people, and recognize that they do have problems, they can be blackmailed, they could be greedy, and that there's a lot of corruption going on, and yet the sports media world doesn't do enough to really investigate it. Or, or quite the opposite, uh, they're, they're working overtime to bury it. Exactly. All right, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. We'll get to some calls. Keith in Rochester is uh, holding on, wants, a question, wants to ask you about horse racing, and uh, we'll... Continue to discuss sports gambling, game fixing, 
in professional sports. Hey, we just welcomed a new affiliate from uh, from North Carolina. I know NASCAR is, is big down there, so we'll uh, we'll chat about that as well with Brian Tui. Don't go away. Welcome back. We're talking about uh, sports gambling and game fixing in professional sports with uh, Brian Tui, author of Larceny Games, and uh, on on the website larcenygames.com. Uh, there's a, um, a, a a button you can push. It takes you to uh, something called Racket Squad. Uh, this is fascinating, Brian. I mean, I, back in the day, as you say, uh, you know, sports fixing or, or game fixing and gambling uh, in, in in sports was such a, I guess, a commonly understood part of the landscape that they actually uh, created a comic book series specifically about that. It was called the Racket Squad. I'd never heard of this uh, publication. It wasn't specifically about game fixing. It was about law enforcement. But yeah, there was four episodes, four issues devoted to fixing of basketball games and fixing of uh, boxing matches. All right. Let's say hello to uh, Keith in Rochester, New York. Keith, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yes, thank you. Uh, For the last 37 years, I have had an avocation for horse racing, and I have developed some successful handicapping methods uh, that have held me really in good stead. Like everyone, I've lost money, but I've also made some uh, goodly money, and I have the IRS statements to prove it. (laughs) Uh, My question is, when I lose, I always figure exactly that, that my handicapping has let me down, and I wanted to uh, ask your guest, for someone like me, who, uh, to use the old parlance, is a rail bird, what would I need to look for insofar as games that are fixed, uh, I'm just saying without being naive and foolish, I, I don't believe I've ever come across a, a fixed race, and uh, when I lose, I lose, and when I win, I win, but um, I really uh, don't, uh, uh, as I contemplate and look at the daily racing form and indi- individual track programs, I don't ever figure, and I understand jockeys and so on being gotten to as such, but I just simply handicap and wing it and uh, don't let the idea of anything being fixed uh, get in my way. And I'm just wondering for a guy like me, uh, 37 years, I just picked it up when I was 20 and a half years old, what I should be looking for uh, if, in fact, I'm so naive that uh, I really am dealing with fixed races. All right, Keith in Rochester, thanks for the call. Great question. Brian. I guarantee Keith has seen a fixed race and just not known it. Um, I have many, many, many files from the FBI about them investigating fixed horse races. And the reason they can fix horse races and the reasons they do is because the horses don't talk. The horses can't <laughs> tell you it's been drugged. You know, the horse can't tell you that somebody, you know, electrified it or shot him up or what have you. But these guys were so good at fixing horse races that they wouldn't just, you know, make number two win. They would fix it for the trifecta, which is like the first one, two, three horses to finish, or even the superfect of the first one, two, three, four horses to come in a particular order. That's how good they were at fixing races. And it's something that still occurs today. The FBI still actually investigates numerous horse racing leads because it's, you know, they run the horses for the money. They run it for the gambling. And one FBI agent actually told me, a former FBI agent told me, he goes, you know, in New York, um, fixing races is so prevalent that sometimes you can go to a horse race and there'll be two competing teams basically trying to fix the race, and nobody wants to win it. It's like the horses are almost running backwards because the jockeys are pulling back and the horse is so hard. I have to tell you, I, went to, I won't tell you where, but I went to a small track once, and uh, it, was, uh, it was a harness race. 
And uh, I swear, uh, it was the guy that I bet on, or the horse that I bet on, I swear that the jockey was, uh, uh, or the harness driver, whatever you call it, was digging his heels into yeah, the... Yeah, dragging the seat, yeah. <laughs> and I, someone said, what's he saving it for? And someone else said, for the fourth race. Uh, but what, what it, where is the, the, the fixing more prevalent, in thoroughbred or harness racing? Uh, you know, the files I had covered both. I mean, there were, it was basically, if there was money to be made, and that's the thing, that's one of the reasons I point out how much money is gambled upon these sports, is, you know, money breeds corruption, no matter what it is. If it's sports, if it's government, if it's unfortunately religion, if it's big business, money breeds corruption. So if there's money to be made, there's enough greedy people out there that are going to figure out a way to use that money to make more money. And when gambling's involved, that's the best way to do it, is to make sure you got that betting edge, and that's many times by fixing the match. Uh, you talked about um, we talked about I think boxing very briefly and 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 uh, that again I mean this has been immortalized in movies there was uh, I think it was the last movie that that uh, Humphrey Bogart ever made it was 1956 it was called The Harder They Fall it was based on a on a book and based on uh, a true story it, based on the true story it was uh, uh, a fighter was it Primo uh, Carnera Primo Carnera Primo Carnera uh, who um, I guess was sort of you know, uh, taken over by uh, uh, the the mob or fell into the wrong hands, and they ran up this incredible record that he was like, he was a giant. This guy. Well, that, that was the funny thing with Primo is he was something like six foot six, six foot seven, and this was back in the like twenties or thirties when people weren't normally that large. So I mean, he looked like he could hit you and hit you hard, but the fact was, is he punched like a kitten, I guess. And what the mob did is they brought him over from Italy and literally fixed every one of his matches until he got and won the heavyweight title. Every match. Wow. The couple that they didn't fix, he lost. <laughs> so they had to keep fixing him until he won the title. And once he won the title, then they bet a bunch of money against him and let him fight a real fight, and he lost. Wow. Uh, and, again, we tend to think that the, these the, this... Uh, happened back in the day, back in the 20s, back in the 30s, the 1919 uh, World Series. Uh, but it, but it, it, while it may happen today, or may you know, it may involve someone trying to engage in some point shaving or whatever. It's not as uh, audacious as it was back in the day. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the problem is, is no one's looking for it. Sports media is not looking for it. The leagues aren't looking for it. The gamblers really aren't looking for it. They'd rather profit off the information rather than turn anybody in for it. And like I said, the FBI quit looking for it. So the four entities there should be investigating this. None of them are doing their job. But the fact is, I mean, Canadian soccer actually has recently had a couple matches that they suspected were fixed. As recently as like this year. And Major League Baseball, I know, investigated fixed games from 2012, just last year. So, I mean, it's, it hasn't really gone away. It's just so far under the radar that no one knows it's occurring. What kind of blowback are you receiving? You begin your book talking about this uh, this one journalist who who tried to write a book about the NFL, and, and uh, it, it, it basically ended his career. Yeah, uh, what it, kind of blowback are you receiving? So far, none. Probably because the book's only been out like a week. <laughs> so, so far, I've been okay, but... It'll be interesting to see if outlets like ESPN, Sports Illustrated, um, Yahoo Sports, and those sorts of things pick up on this and actually do something with it. Because 
everything I did in the Larceny Games, I mean, it's taken from the FBI files. It's taken from interviews with people who know what they're talking about, people who are former FBI agents who used to be professionals in the sports gambling world. I mean, these are people who know what's what. And all of this information is 100% accurate. Now, does it mean that the files really mean that so-and-so fixed a game or so-and-so was gambling on the game? Not necessarily, because obviously the FBI didn't get a conviction or they didn't even arrest the guy who was involved, but it's very credible information. So I think for all these sports media outlets to take this, see it, and then just throw it aside, I think then you can realize that something maybe is going on within the sports media world, and the fact that they fund professional sports makes them really an incestual relationship between the two and something to fear. Uh, what about your previous book, The Fix is In, where you talk about the, the showbiz manipulation of professional sports, where games are fixed uh, to fit a certain narrative. Uh, what, what was the blowback uh, from that one? Well, I know for a fact that there were certain outlets, certain radio shows, even a television show that all had agreed to have me on the show and then suddenly like pulled the rug out from under me and not be willing to reschedule, not willing to have me on at all. And I'm certain that's because of the contents of the book, because I was talking about the fact that these leagues may be fixing these games and this all may be just entertainment and be reality TV, which in this day and age means that nothing's really real. Um, and I found it very upsetting because, you know, I'm just talking about sports. I'm not talking about something that's, really, really important, and yet I know just from this experience that there's people out there who probably have the truth on bigger, more important subjects, and if they can't get the media attention, if they can't break through that wall and get the word out there, then nobody knows it exists. You're a, uh, you're a sports fan, I'm guessing. Obviously, you know, this is, wouldn't be an area that you would investigate. Uh, how has this changed uh, the way you watch games? I mean, let's face it, sports is a religion. I know that's a cliche, but cliches are become cliches because they're tr- they're true. Uh, I mean, how how did this change your sports watching habits, if at all? I can't watch sports really anymore at all. <laughs> Not in the way I used to. But I think that's a good thing. I mean, it allows me free time to do other things outside of when I used to spend, you know, all Sunday watching the NFL. I can do other things, spend time with my wife, and you know, enjoy life a little bit more. But I, I think that's what fans need to do is they have to take off that fan hat and look at this stuff as a business and look at this as a way that these people who run these sports are trying to take every last dime out of your pocket by introducing new jerseys, by introducing new television packages, by charging you $12 for a beer or what have you. They're trying to suck the money out of you because, like you said, it's a religion. They know you're coming to see these games, and you're not going to stop unless you look at it in a different light. What about, well, what has the reaction been? Maybe it's too early to tell from this book, but the previous book, again, the fix is in. What's the reaction from fans? I mean, you're like the guy who's telling their kid there is no Santa Claus. The amazing thing to me is that every email I get is positive. And many emails I get from people, and I get a lot of emails, actually thank me for doing what it is I did, for writing that book. And, I mean, that makes it feel really good because I know both of these books, The Larceny Games and The Fix is In, no sports writer would have written. It had to be some sort of outsider to do it. I mean, besides myself and that book that Moldea wrote back in 89, Interference, nobody's written a book about game fiction in the United States. The only other book that's out there is this book called The Fix by Declan Hill, who's a Canadian, and he wrote it about soccer but no one's tackled the American sports leagues. Nobody's taken them on because I think they're afraid of them. A couple of um, 
sports heroes, not even outside the the, the sporting ring. Uh, people like Will Chamberlain and uh, and Joe Lewis, uh, the heavyweight champion Joe Lewis, were mentioned in those FBI files. Uh, I mean, those are heroes to a lot of people. When you when you come across names like that, uh, I mean, well, first of all, to what extent were were, were those legends involved in gambling? Do we know? Well, according to the FBI file, Wilt Chamberlain was much like Michael Jordan, really a compulsive gambler, and he would gamble on anything. And according to the files, from the, what they got from their sources and informants, was that Wilt Chamberlain was betting ten to twelve thousand dollars a game on himself. He wasn't betting against himself. He was betting on himself, but he was still betting on basketball games in which he played, which should have kicked him right out of the league, and it should kick him right out of the Hall of Fame. But it hasn't. Um, and the thing with the FBI was is they, when they recognized all this information, they didn't care because they weren't the NBA's police force. And if Wilt was just betting on the game, that wasn't a federal crime like fixing the game would have been. So the FBI basically dumped the information. But I think the biggest one for me that I uncovered in the book and through these files was the fact that Muhammad Ali was likely involved in fixing fights. Oh, say it ain't so, Brian. <laughs> I'm telling you, he was one of my kind of my heroes. He was my, my brother's hero for sure growing up as a kid. Um, but there was probably three fights that Ali actually had fixed in his favor that allowed him, one, to win the heavyweight championship against Sonny Liston and then retain it against Sonny Liston. And then probably the last time he won the heavyweight title against uh, Spinks. They were probably all fixed. Wow, I have to have you back on, and we'll, we'll maybe we'll dedicate the show just to talk about that. I, but although I don't know if I could bear it. <laughs> I mean, that's the funny thing with these files is a lot of it were heavy duty names, and it just kind of made kind of blew my mind. It wasn't just you know like obscure people. You'd be like, oh, okay, see where this guy would fix it. These were prominent athletes, prominent figures, and yet these were the ones the FBI were investigating. Brian, always fascinating, and I appreciate your time tonight. Larceny games, sports gambling, game fixing, and the FBI. Uh, not for the faint of heart in the, uh, in the in the sports arena, that's for sure. And the website, larcenygames.com. Uh, thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, uh, Tim Spreen, for uh, technical production. And uh, back next week, of course, talking about uh, the White House call girl, the real Watergate story with Phil Stanford, Rosemary Ellen Guiley as well. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.